So the, the answer to this is definitely evident. But do you ever doubt things? Like even the most important things. Doubt your marriage. Doubt your life decisions. Children, we'll see y'all later. Thank you, Andrew. What your future holds. The things that have happened in your past. Mistakes you've made. Do you ever doubt what you believe? You doubt your parenting. Maybe you doubt your parents. Doubt that your prayers do anything at all. Is there even a God? And if so, does, does this God even care? Sometimes if we let it, doubt can become the sort of virtue that's celebrated in our culture. To doubt means we truly have an open mind. And that to say anything with a certainty, a rigid certainty, or a, especially a religious certainty, this is an arrogance. This is a kind of pride. One of the fasting growing demographics of groups in our nation is this group called the nuns. No, they don't serve in a Catholic church, but they're people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, nuns. 36 million nuns are in the U.S. And most of them come from mainly Christian backgrounds. We don't know why they dismiss what they believe, but I think for many, it's easier to just be committed to uncertainty than taking a stand. Writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton said that merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as well as the object of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. The mind's not meant to be left in this state of perpetual openness, as if nothing can ever be true. We can seek out evidence and ground ourselves on reality. And at the same time, we can acknowledge there's so much uncertainty in this world. And in a sense, we see the grandness of God. We see His rule over history, His moving in the world, His grand plan of redemption. And there are glories and there are His ways that we will never fully grasp this side of heaven in our humanity. We see but part of the picture now. But we can be certain about certain things. The truth can be known and the truth is fundamentally found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A life that turned the world upside down. And we're going to see today that Jesus gives evidence to John the Baptist of all people who is struggling in his doubts. And Jesus does this because He wants him to be certain. Just as the writer of the Gospel Luke, of Luke writes, if you look back to chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, this is why he's writing, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So John the Baptist, even with all the evidence God has given him in his life, still at times struggled with doubts. He wasn't sure that everything was going according to plan. He wasn't sure that Jesus was the one that he thought he was. Our doubts, we can bring them before God. 
We can raise them in His Word. Truth is never afraid of our questioning. Truth is never afraid of our doubts. So this morning, I just want to tell you, if you have doubts, you can safely bring them to Jesus. He wants us to be certain about the most important things. He is the one that overcomes our doubts. Let's pray this morning to Him. Dear Jesus, thank You that You answer all of life's questions. That You are sufficient in and of Yourself, God. In our doubts, in our struggling, in our sorrows of the soul, in the ups and downs and the confusion, God, You are there. There is no hard question that cannot be asked. There is no man behind the curtain. Lord, You delight to bring things to the light. And Lord, I just pray as we see how You as our perfect Savior assured John, assured the crowds, I pray that our hearts would be assured too this morning. Thank You that You are the One that overcomes our doubts. In your name we pray. Amen. As we're here in the text today, we're going to see three different scenes. First, we're going to see that John sends messengers. He sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus answers the doubts of John in verses 18 through 23. Then these messengers leave, and we see that Jesus answers the doubts of the crowds in verses 24 through 28. And then lastly, we see that Jesus rebukes this generation of people who are not pleased with anything in verses 29 through 35. <clears throat> we saw last week that Jesus had healed the centurion's sick servant. He, bought, he had brought back the widow's son from the dead. <clears throat> and after all this, we read in verse 17, and this report about him spread to the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So the word and fame of Jesus is only spreading. It's going gangbusters. And news of all Jesus' accolade, they had made it all the way to a dungeon five miles from the Dead Sea where John the Baptist was held publicly, was held for publicly calling out a king for his sin. Jesus' popularity is on the rise and John is languishing in prison. He's stuck in a cell. And if you remember back in Luke, Zechariah, who's the father of John, he sang a song of prophecy about his son at the beginning of the gospel. Verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist was to be the forerunner to Jesus. And point others towards Him. And when He grew up, He was in the wilderness calling others to repentance. And last we saw of John, we've kind of forgotten about Him. He started out strong in Luke. All these prophecies, all this gifting. God was not silent anymore. The last we saw of Him was in chapter 3. He was baptizing people in the wilderness. He even baptized Jesus before being thrown in jail. So like the rabbis and like Jesus at this time, John has his followers. He has his disciples who follow him. And they've reported all the miraculous news of Jesus to him in jail. John's initial response, he's unsure about this. 
And he sends two of them to verify. Uh, this is what Jewish conviction of the day, you needed two witnesses to verify something. He sends out two of his disciples. Calling two of the disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Anyone mind grab me some water? <clears throat> He's having some doubts. Thank you, baby. He's having some doubts about whether Jesus is the one he had been waiting on, whether he is the fulfillment of John's entire ministry as the forerunner. And perhaps it was in the despair of his imprisonment that left him questioning. Jesus has moved forward with his ministry, and here John sits in the cell. And I think John, John, this wasn't what it was supposed to look like. Here John had been preaching judgment and fire. While Jesus in his early Galilean ministry, he was preaching just about everything else. There's no reference to cutting down evildoers or punishing sinners. Instead of judgment on the Gentiles that John was proclaiming, here, Jesus primarily celebrates their acceptance into the kingdom. John's understanding of what this Messiah was to be was different from reality. He was, Jesus was so unlike what he expected. And so the two disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we continue looking? So John's life and ministry are at stake in Jesus' answer to this question. He's genuinely concerned. Have I been pointing to the wrong guy all this time? I think of Jesus' response. Hearing this question from John, it would be easy for us to think that Jesus might rebuke him. John, are you for real? You baptized me. And my Father said from heaven audibly, God spoke from the clouds. This is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit came down and anointed me. But he doesn't rebuke him. Jesus is not angry at John's question. He's patient with him. He doesn't answer them with a word right away like we might expect. He doesn't say, yes, of course it's me. Instead, he assures him with evidence with a resume of his actions. The disciples are sent back, not with just what they've heard, but powerful works that they have witnessed themselves. Verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. That hour powerful works of healing and exorcisms were done. Demons right in front of them. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. These six things here, the lame walking, the blind that can see, the leopards cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead being raised, the poor have good news. These are all direct quotations from the book of Isaiah. These are prophecies written hundreds of years earlier. Every single one of them scattered throughout Isaiah of this one to come. This prophecy of the Messiah who would come to heal, who would come to make thing, all things right and restored. And they're being fulfilled tangibly right in their midst. The way Christ deals with John's doubts is not to rebuke 
or to dismiss, but he gives him full assurance that he is the one that that they have been waiting on. Full assurance, he is the Messiah. Those disciples were not running back to John in their doubts. He may not be what they expected, but he is definitely the one that they have been waiting for. How do we counsel others in their doubts? Sometimes in the church, doubts are not always accepted well. Questions are not always welcomed. Sometimes instead of being heard and patiently cared for, they can be seen as evidence against someone that they're not really uh, fully trusting, that they don't really have faith. Someone asking questions instead of being seen as an opportunity to come alongside them and help them and point them to the truth, their doubts can be shut down or discouraged. I know at times in my Christian life, I've asked questions before that were not met uh, with, with much charity. And so doubts get repressed. We kind of put on an act that everything is okay. And we forge ahead without having our deepest doubts, our, our deepest questions really dealt with. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of those nuns, a lot of those Christians, those people that no longer believe. I have to think that this is a, uh, is a symptom of, of, why, of why people may walk away from the faith. That, that doubts, they, their doubts overtake them. I just pray that as we think and deal and love people in their doubts, may this never happen in our church. We see that Jesus is more comfortable with those doubting, with John doubting, than, than his church can be at times. So may we delight to point others to the truth. May we never punish someone for seeking to understand. That's when something becomes real. When we ask questions of it, when we seek to understand it and acknowledge it and live it, not just accept something on face value and and never ask a question. Let's have the same patience that Jesus had when we have evangelistic conversations. Let's have the same Jesus patience Jesus had as we encounter skeptics, as we deal with people's baggage and hurt, as we seek to to build a community that treasures Christ as King and St. Pete, we can point them to the same Jesus who is the rock that we can build our house upon. The same Jesus who delights to answer us in our doubt. The truth, as I said earlier, the truth is never afraid of questioning. It's never afraid of our doubts. It stands up to the greatest scrutiny. And as our beliefs stand up to this scrutiny, they prove themselves either more true or, more, or, or lacking. I, I know as we've grown in our faith, the time and time when I've had questions, when I've had doubts, it's amazing to see as, as it encounters those doubts, those doubts die as I'm, as I'm convinced more and more of the evidence, as I'm seeing more and more the reality of Christ's work in my life. Those doubts die. And I have much more assurance of faith. His church should always bring a place, be a place where we can bring our doubts to other brothers and sisters in Christ. So we can encourage others in their doubts, but what about our doubts? What do we do with them? Every Christian has doubt. Every believer is a doubter. How, how could we not? I'm always so taken aback when, when I we used to go to Easter services where the, the greatest day of 
outside attenders and lost people attend the church, Christmas and Easter, and to hear an Easter service that doesn't share the gospel, or to hear an Easter service that doesn't give a uh, appeal to the explanation of the crucifixion and the resurrection, as though that they can just be accepted on, on face value to this lost world around us. I mean, just think about this. John was dedicated from, to God from the womb. His father received prophecy about him that was well known. John probably knew as soon as he could hear words of what was to come of his life. John himself received prophetic visions from God. He prepared Israel to receive the Lord. He paved the way for Jesus. He even baptized Jesus. And John doubted. Jesus still didn't fulfill John's expectations. I think so many times we think if we just had a miracle or we, we had evidence and we could have something tangibly in front of us, we would believe it's just not true. I've sat down with an agnostic brother and I said, hey, if, if this, I can do a miracle right now in front of you or if God can do a miracle right now in front of you, would that change your belief? And they said plainly, no. A season of doubt in prison does not mean that John did not possess faith. Faith and doubt can live in the same heart. We'll have seasons of assurance. We'll have seasons of doubt. Think about the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah is ready to give up his office in his despair. He's had enough of dealing with, with unfaithful people. Hear Elisha's despair as the Lord asks him what he is doing. What are you doing here, Elisha? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Jonah, another prophet of God, ran away to escape the responsibility of the word of prophecy that God himself was giving to him. No one is immune from doubt, distress, confusion. Maybe you're here this morning and you doubt where you are headed in this life. You doubt what God has for you. You doubt in His promises. Life seems so different from what you expected. A few things to encourage us in this. First is that we should never treat our doubts with certainty. We should always doubt our doubts. Never let them have the last word. We should seek out answers. We should confront our doubts head on. Find evidence of the truth and then with that truth build certainty on the truth. Doubt can make us short-sighted, brothers and sisters. Faith gives us the long view. Secondly, second encouragement is our faith is not our feelings. We're going to feel all sorts of things in this life. Our world may be crashing down around us and we may respond in so many different ways. It may feel as though there is just too much. I'm preaching to my own heart right now. I've had to battle this past year with church planning and all the changes in our life, but my feelings are not my faith. Your faith is not your feelings. Thank goodness. 
<laughs> Third encouragement is in the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary things that are powerful killers of our doubt, and products of our assurance. His word, his prayer, prayer to him, and his people. Christians have to pray, Lord, help me. Plead with God. Help my unbelief. The power of His Word we see in Hebrews 4. For the Word of God, it's, it's living and active. It's not dead and stale. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How powerful is that? And then His people... He gives us His gifts to talk through to our doubts and concerns. Never be afraid to, to voice your doubts to your brothers and sisters. Children and students in the room, if you have doubts, talk freely about them with your parents. Talk about them with other people in the church. It's okay to not know all the answers. And I believe any parent in this room would delight to hear the children talk openly about their doubts. They want to hear your heart. When we meet one-on-one throughout the weeks for, for community group, for accountability, let's be open about our doubts. Let's share them. And then just last observation or encouragement about our doubts. That never did I have more doubt in my life than when I was living in sin as a Christian when I was sort of a halfway Christian, when I had one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. Living this way is a breeding ground for doubt. It's a breeding ground for turmoil in her soul. Brothers and sisters, kill your sin. Put it away and come to Christ. He is our strength. Jesus ends this display of miracles and assurance by saying, in blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This seems like an odd statement to end on. I think another word may be more helpful for us in understanding instead of offended, maybe ashamed. There, there were many there then, and there, there are many today who are not convinced He was the one to come. Jewish people today reject Him as their Messiah. And they're waiting on another to come. Every other worldview outside the Christian one rejects Him as the Lord of life. To say that Jesus is the only way to God, this will cause offense. We know this. We don't want to cause offense, but but the Gospel will always cause offense. It's much easier to say that being a Christian is right for me and whatever you believe is fine for you. But the good news of the Gospel declares you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And there is only one Savior. We may praise Him when we gather as His people, but what about when we scatter as His people? Well, we have the same boldness to say in front of others who believe differently, He is the only way to God. And He will judge people for their sins. We can say we're not ashamed of Jesus, but as we stand for Him, our loyalty is tested. Will we be offended or ashamed? Or will we be the ones that cling to Him despite no matter what others think, no matter the doubts that come our way? May we fear God and not man. 
So the disciples, they leave and they head back to John. They've got their answer. Now we see Jesus turns to the crowds and He speaks to them about John. He answers them in their doubts. He says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. These crowds of people, they're just like us. They're skeptical. They're doubting. They're unbelieving. Jesus knows the tendency of people to critique others for their faith. He doesn't want them to come to the wrong conclusions about John. He wants to assure his followers and those who had received John's word and John's baptism. He asked them the same question three times in different ways for emphasis. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? In other words, a weak and wavering figure in the wilderness? The answer is, of course not. John was powerful and fearless preacher. He stood for truth despite persecution. He's a man who stood before the king and called him out for his sin. John was no jellyfish. He spoke with the authority of God. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Was this some prosperity preacher in fine clothes with make, trying to make a name for himself? No, he was not from royalty or privileged classes. Those people live in luxury. They're in king's courts. They're not out in the wilderness surviving off locusts and honey and wrapped in fur. Jesus told them, you went out to see a prophet. Actually, more than a prophet. John is the prophesied one that would come before me. He speaks of Malachi 3.1. This is the one of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of prophecy, John is the fulfillment of prophecy. John is the one we read about from Malachi. The last word of prophecy 400 years prior, the the ending of the book of Malachi, Malachi 4.5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Who is this Elisha? Elisha was already there. Is he coming back? No. Someone like Elisha. This Elijah-like prophet who was in the wilderness like Elijah, who called people to repentance just like Elijah did. Jesus affirms that. Followers of Judaism to this day leave out a chair during Passover for Elisha. This Elijah that has not come in their eyes. But he's here in John the Baptist. And if this prophetic endorsement isn't enough from Jesus, he goes on to praise John even more. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus tells the crowd that that fur-clad, locust-eating wild man 
who is now imprisoned is the greatest man who has ever lived. Wow. John has a unique and unrepeatable role in the history of salvation. And for these crowds, a proper understanding of who John is is a prerequisite. It was, they needed proper understanding of John to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. John's ministry is like a torchbearer who's running in advance of the Olympic Games. Without the games behind them, it's incomplete. It's ambiguous in and of itself. Without the games to come. Or like a really good offensive lineman who blocks with no running back behind them. John's ministry requires the ministry of Jesus for its completion and validation. That's why John is so concerned. Jesus says John is the best the human race has to offer. And know that this is not based on John's merit, but on his office as the forerunner of the Messiah. He is this great transition figure that's paved the way. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, yet he introduced the coming kingdom of God. And after all this high praise for John, Jesus says something that has even greater implications for us, brothers and sisters. This is amazing. I hope you leave here today with this grandness of this statement. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. For every New Testament believer, this is an amazing statement. This is unbelievable. Does this mean that we're better or more faithful than John? Absolutely not. (laughs) This statement is not to denigrate John. It does mean that we are more blessed than John could ever be. John was a bridge crossing over from the old and the inauguration of of God's kingdom. Yet he lived before the greater realization of the kingdom at Pentecost. The gifts that we have on this side of the cross, what John knew in mystery, we know in truth that Jesus was the Messiah. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of the world and he rose again in glory. And all who live under this king and kingdom are more blessed than the greatest man alive, according to Christ. Just take a moment. Dwell on those words of Jesus and the riches that we possess in him. Things that John could dream of. John is the greatest in terms of his function. He was more than a prophet. John had one foot in the old and one foot in the new. We have both feet in the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of it found in Jesus. Every believer is born again, has the Spirit of God within them, and everyone born of the Spirit is greater and more blessed than John. All who could repent and believe, who would repent and believe, they are saved by His grace. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, if they lived in the wilderness, if they lived in palaces, even if they've doubted, His grace is sufficient. His people have blessings like no other. So after assuring John's disciples of their doubt, and the crowds of their doubt in John, we see the different responses of these crowds. We see Jesus judging them in in their different responses. In verse 29, When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, 
they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. All the people who had gone out to see John and be baptized by him, even reviled tax collectors, declared God good, declared God just and true. But the ones that rejected John's baptism, that rejected John, also rejected the words and works of Jesus. Even though they saw miracles in their midst. Even though they saw healings happen and demons driven out. Jesus rebukes those that reject him. And he compares them to children playing games. Verses 31 and 32. Frequently when our kids get together, they all try to decide on what game to play. What game do you want to play? Sometimes it's fashion show. Sometimes, a lot of times at our house, it's war. Or in the case of some of our kiddos, as we've seen, let's play church. Those that reject Christ, they're like bored kids hanging out of the marketplace. And they're trying to pick a game of what to play. And at first they're like, hey, let's play, let's play the flute game. Let's sing and dance and have a party and have fun. And the kids are like, no. I don't really want to play that today. And they're like, hey, well, what about funeral? Can we play funeral and be real sad and just kind of dreary? And maybe we could play that. But no one really wants to play that. This is how they treated John and Jesus. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John came pronouncing repentance and judgment. He was intense. He lived in the wilderness. He abstained from eating and drinking. He lived this ascetic, almost monk-like lifestyle. Did they receive him? No. They called him demon-possessed. They called him a madman. And here comes Jesus, who drank and ate and celebrated with tax collectors, with sinners. Celebrated the coming of the kingdom. Did they receive him? No. They accused him of being a drunkard. Friend of sinners. And what's striking about this is that John and Jesus were both faithful to preach the same message. No matter the expression of the message, they were both rejected. John spoke of the coming of God's kingdom is requiring repentance and portrayed this via his fasting. Jesus spoke of the coming of God's kingdom as a time of great celebration and portrayed this like a wedding feast. Both are valid expressions of different aspects of God's kingdom that, that we need. And if either is totally ignored, we're left with an unbalanced betrayal. Jesus, in a sense, has performed a comedy. John has performed a tragedy. And the audience wasn't pleased with either. Two thumbs down. It doesn't matter what genre or act they perform. This audience wasn't going to be happy with it. They're like fickle little children who aren't happy, happy to play any game. This rejection of John and Jesus shows us the message of the kingdom of God, the, the message of the gospel, that we need to repent, that we need to submit ourselves to a new king and live for his kingdom. It's, it's offensive in itself, in and of itself. It doesn't matter how it's dressed up. The gospel rightly shared 
will always be polarizing. Even from the lips of our perfect Savior. There will be those that never accept the truth. It will either be received or rejected. Rejection of both on the part of these people uncovers the true nature of their hearts. They do not want to do the will of the Lord. It doesn't matter who it comes from. It's such a good reminder to me, to us, as we seek to make disciples in this city, that rejection of the Gospel message, it's not due to its form of the presentation. Sure, we could be jerks about the Gospel. Or sure, we could say things that are incorrect or goofy or not make sense or not be clear. But the way we present ourselves is inferior to people there's gonna people are gonna respond and reject the gospel no matter how it's dressed up our job is not to dress it up our job is to proclaim it in truth and in love and jesus closes by saying yet wisdom is justified by all her children he's not referring to the children playing games all this means is that you'll be able to tell a wise decision by its results. The wise choice either to follow after Jesus or to reject Him will be revealed in time. The fruit these followers produce in choosing to live for the kingdom of God will justify the truth. It will be plain to see what was the wise choice. So brothers and sisters, as we close, where do you fall this morning? Are you like John doubting what a, life, what a life following this Messiah really looks like? Are you like the children who are determined to be unhappy with anything because it's not how you think it should be? I just want to assure you, if you're not a believer here this morning, just as every, unbeliever, every believer has doubt, every unbeliever has faith. I was reading through an article this week and it, so we all take for granted the regularity of the universe, the reliability of our senses, the rationality of our minds. We appeal to ultimate values like godliness, truth, beauty, and love. None of these can be proved scientifically. They're all matters of faith. But with Christ, they have no true, beautiful, or loving foundation. This article was talking about the faith it takes to be an atheist. Take your doubts to Jesus. He has overcome them all. Beloved, take, take comfort in knowing that even if we are least in the kingdom of God, least in the kingdom of God, if we're His, and we doubt and we struggle, we're still more blessed than the greatest man who ever lived according to Jesus. Jesus.